Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. It is episode number 127. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers, of the following four genres. Mysteries. Crime. Thriller. And suspense. Correct. I was struggling there. It's funny, it always feels like a test, doesn't it? Every time we do that. Every time, every time. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, we'll be going through our news shortly, but we ought to tell you who our guests are this week. Multiple guests. Yes. No less. <laughs> we are joined by Jonathan Bland and Jamie Veach, who have uh, collaborated with you. Yes. So this is one of my freelance jobs. Um, so I was, uh, well, they actually assigned me as a proofreader uh, for their book, Vitalizing Purpose. Now, it's a, it's a book about um, how social enterprise can help public services and that, I mean that's that's too short to explain exactly what the book is about it, it contains uh, vignettes of people's experiences of social enterprises working with public services um and we should talk about what social enterprises are shouldn't we yeah so I don't I don't I, I think people have probably heard of the phrase but not quite understand exactly what a social enterprise is well I'm sure there are probably ones in everyone's neighborhood but it's never easy to sort of put categorize, I think. No. And I'm I'm struggling to to define it. I think it's difficult because you can find social enterprises in all aspects of business. So it's not just in uh, businesses that help uh, people. I mean, I think essentially they are for people. And I think the best way to look at it is a business where um, rather than profit being the motivation it's um purpose purpose yeah so it's what you're doing and it's usually for people for the community so if we take publishing as an example there are companies who call themselves selves social enterprise publishers and that is because they're not thinking so much commercially but they're thinking of getting um marginalized voices or um ideas or um giving opportunities to people that would never be published by a, a strictly commercial publisher. So it could be that they concentrate on poetry or um, they might have a prize and then the prize-winning writers get published. Or in non-fiction, it could be really niche um, areas. Um, but they So they, they tend to get funding, but they don't... Profit is not their motive. Their motive is getting things published. So they're not thinking oh, that's going to sell so many copies. They're thinking that needs to be, people need to hear this, hear about this and read right. about this. That makes sense. Yeah. But I think in a public service sense, it's things like companies who um, help in the care system or um, uh, I suppose another example would be special needs. 
So they offer services for special needs. They're not motivated by profit because they know they're never going to make a big profit. It's not a commercial enterprise. They're, they're usually small businesses or medium-sized businesses. And so the book is about these sorts of companies, what they can do for public services and how public services can take advantage and become better by using these sort of businesses. Right. <laughs> I think I've summed it up. I hope so. Yeah. So it's it's, it's fascinating. Even yeah, it, if you don't work in that se- sector of society, it's a fascinating book. So Jonathan and Jamie will join us later and put some flesh on that and talk about the, the writing process because a lot of people have contributed to this from that sector as well. And as they say in the interview, they would love it to be the sort of corner piece of public policy of the future. Yeah, I, I think uh, so. It's kind of like a a manifesto for better. But, you know, in terms of things, public services being organised in the UK with outcomes in mind as opposed to exactly anything else. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we'll talk to them a little bit later. Let's get into some news. And uh, it's been, it's, it's a, there's some weird news out there. Um, news items, I should say. Yes. Some weird news. That doesn't quite work, <laughs> does it? I do apologise. Um, but first of all, we wanted to touch on something that will affect a number of our authors in terms of, they'll, they'll be upset that University of East Anglia are one of many universities cutting back on their arts provision in the sense that the humanities part of the university are making a lot of redundancies yeah, so and this is the we ought to just say it yeah. is the home uh, university of east anglia as a crime writing ma which quite a number of our hobeck authors have taken well they're also very well known for creative writing courses generally aren't they uea they have been for years oh yeah absolutely and they had andrew motion the poet laureate was uh, was a teacher Mal- malcolm bradbury as malcolm well, bradbury as well yeah so you know some of the most influential thinkers on creative writing have worked out of uh, uea but the cuts are falling in humanities particularly yeah so the in total it's 113 staff are being made redundant now they're not all academic staff some of that is technical staff but in the humanities department or arts and humanities i should say 31 out of 36 cuts um you know for that area are in the arts and humanities in the academic area sorry i should say so that's quite a lot. That's that is, a lot. yeah. So, but I think to put it in context, the uh, higher education sector in the UK is under enormous financial pressure from for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, tuition fees are maxed out mm-hmm. uh, uh, for UK uh, for English students and Welsh students nine thousand two hundred and fifty, and that hasn't gone up for some time. Uh, meanwhile, of course, there are inflationary pressures and, uh, and other factors. But since the pandemic and also Brexit, they haven't been able to attract the really um, lucrative international students to the levels that they have. And also, actually, there are fewer people going to university because of the costs involved. And so their headcount is falling. Yeah. And there isn't as much government support around either. So all of those factors mean that there is, you know, quite a few institutions have multi-million pound deficits which they can't sort out no, and others are, are heading that way. I do sympathise with the university because they have to make cuts. They just have to. So, you know, and they've got to look at it strategically. They can't just say, oh, we, we must keep certain courses alive because 
they're great courses. They ha- they just have to. So I do feel some sympathy for yeah, that. Yeah, but I think at the same time, um, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, in the sense that the arts courses are the ones taking the brunt of this across oh, universities. Oh, they always are, yeah. Uh, you've said earlier, you know, in an earlier episode, talking about your own, uh, one of your former institutions at Wolverhampton Arts School, and that's cutting things back big time. Oh, big time. So um, the master's course I did has been cut. The, um, they... Uh, still currently offer phd in the arts but that's going to be cut as well and i i did think about doing a phd there but i won't be able to no not that you have many time since hobeck came into your life <laughs> well no but in the future <laughs> well um we'll keep that you know keep an eye on that but uh, that may well have a, a overshadow the provision of the crime writing ma which has produced a number quite you know not just hobeck authors but a whole slew of really very successful auth- new authors in the market yeah they're claiming at the moment that the courses aren't being reduced so mm. how they're going to maintain the same courses with well, same level, staff. level yeah, of exactly. stuff yeah same level of Students but of course, and... there have been strikes throughout the higher education sector, and it's affecting marking for people doing their finals. Potentially affecting my son Ben, who's uh, due to graduate in about three weeks' time from Loughborough. Yeah. Picked him up today. That's I'm, I'm just fresh from driving 200 miles round trip to drop him off <laughs> back at home, and uh, you know, remove him from. I mean, it just feels like yesterday he went to university. It's really weird that he's been, uh, you know, under the umbrella of Loughborough for four years. Yeah, now, now he's out in the big wide world. Watch out, world. <laughs> Here comes Ben. Yeah, that's right. Okay, our next story. Um, so last week it was um, Independent Bookshop Week, and I did do a couple of tweets about that. And I mm. mentioned our favourite bookshop, or at least my favourite bookshop, with the one in Nantwich. I yes. what it's called, but it's this really <laughs> old building. It's an amazing Tudor building, yes. I think it's the right. only main bookshop in Nantwich anyway. But Right. Um, but there was an article in the news in the newsletter the bookseller about how the independent bookshops came together and they wrote an open letter to publishers so publishers <laughs> yeah. collective didn't get ours but anyway no yep. we, we haven't seen our open letter or closed letter and um, they wanted publishers to stop linking to amazon in their social media and their adverts for their books they're saying just for this week please don't do that because it's harming us hmm So the letter says, we know we can't compete with Amazon and nor do we want to. We know we can offer experiences that a computer can't. But the reality is that for every copy of a book sold in our shop, someone else will look at it in our shop before buying it online. This means that in an indirect way, quantities of books sold online through Amazon would not have been discovered without a physical bookshop. So they're basically saying you wouldn't be um, in the position you are without us as a publisher. I yeah, don't, I don't buy that. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't. I think for mainstream, you know, p- publishing, I've, I've, look, a few notable exceptions in terms of the independent books shops who've taken our books, but you know, it's incredibly difficult for a small independent publisher to break through uh, and get into these shops. You have to build a personal relationship to to an extent, or have a local author or things like that. We've even had authors report when they've gone to try and get their books in, they've um, been treated extremely rudely. So um, I appreciate that Amazon is the big beast and it is the go-to place for a lot of people to research their books and get them. And indeed, most of our books, the majority of our sales are through Amazon. No question about that, either through Kindle Unlimited or sales uh, as e-books. And, you know, it, it is 
difficult for us to to penetrate into bricks and mortar stores. We don't have the resources to do it, really. No, uh, but also speaking as a reader, and I don't know how atypical I am, but I use Amazon almost like a database. So I see I see a book I like, I might click on a link online to Amazon. I add that book to my Amazon wish list, and I have a very long wish list. It's about five pages long, and I'll, I'll be in a bookshop. And I will look on my wish list to find books I want and I will buy them from that bookshop. So I actually think the links on social media to Amazon are good for me because it means I see a book. I so think. you're doing what their process in reverse? Yes. And yeah, going, going to a physical bookshop. Isn't it? I don't know if they've thought about that. Possibly. Possibly. But look, I, I, do ha- I do have sympathy. It's very, very difficult in the retail. We've spoken to a number of booksellers in our uh, it, during the creation of this podcast yeah and 127 episodes or something that we've done (laughs) um and it has been tough and indeed you know one of the bookworms and dragon tales over in norwich uh, a couple there that we spoke to uh had to crowdfund to keep going and russell was it russell Russell crowe stepped in with with a very generous donation but at the same time we're in the same boat you know we feel as publishers we could easily get to the point where we're going to have to sort of say this month you know if we don't get crowdfunded we 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 fold up i mean you know it's the margins for us as publishers and indeed for independent bookshops are tiny and getting smaller because of the 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 production costs of paperbacks that would go into these independent bookshops they want a cover price and they want a return a uh, a discount as we call it in the in the in the trade which is 50% 50% for instance on a 10 pound cover price we can't make any money on that nor do they really no and that's the problem so in a way they we we and they are in the same position yes we are yeah and so why don't we do something together but i think it's so disparate as a as an organisation i just don't think i know bookshop.org was launched on the face of it as a way to support your local independent bookshop and to support publishers like us but it hasn't really worked like that in the uk yeah, i don't think you don't hear much about it no it, it launched with a lot of fanfare say 18 months 12 months ago something like that uh and i think has fizzled somewhat i don't know whether that is the case or we've just ignored you know missed it but well, it actually, just feels like that way i'd like to know so if there's any independent bookshop owners listening to this and, and they're thinking you know we use bookshop.org and it saved us i'd like to know yeah that's an interesting question our final story. Um, our final story. Oh, so this is just a, a smaller story, and I only heard about it today through one of our authors, Julie Anderson, and who runs the Clapham Book Festival every year. And that's that Kate Moss is going to be taking part, which is a great scoop. Kate Moss with an E. Kate Moss with an E. Yes, she did say, actually, when she tweeted about it, she said there were some lads. She was putting up a poster, and some lads went past, and they went, ooh, Kate Moss. And she said... Even better than Kate Moss, it's Kate Moss the writer. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a shame that we still have to uh, put that caveat in. I know. But... So, okay, well, that's a big name to to attract to the festival, which would be excellent. We did say we would go down in uh, is October. October, yes, it is. So uh, terrific, and she was a, she appeared, of course, on um, Desert Island Discs this week on Radio Four. She did, and I caught it in my travels today, and I listened to it, and I carried on listening at home it's a really good episode i would highly recommend it it's quite emotional and it's very insightful as well about um what motivated kate to become a writer the effect of the labyrinth publication yeah. on her career and on on her 
views on writing and also how her childhood and her university education, all that sort of fed into the you know her beliefs and, and the person she's become. It's fascinating. Mm. And Dancing Queen by ABBA was one of her songs, which I approve <laughs> of highly. Do you? I thought you hated it. <laughs> yeah, but it's a, a nice, cheerful... No, no, I love it. Official song. Well, it's a, well, it's it's a classic. It's one of the yeah. greatest pop classics, but it's perhaps damaged. Its reputation is damaged by the fact that when we were at university, it was played every single club night we ever went to. But it was guaranteed to get everybody on the yeah. dance floor. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely did. Right, let's get to our interview this week with Jonathan Bland and Jamie Veach, who are. Uh, experts in the social enterprise world. And uh, in fact, Jonathan was the creator of E3M, who have published this book. So you work with them to get this book out here, which is Vitalizing Purpose, which is uh, subtitled The Power of the Social Enterprise Difference in Public Services. So in a sense, this is a a collection of uh, essays as Mm, well as um, some sort of more sort of uh, policy-driven items which both authors have have collated in which to offer suggestions for the way that public services which are you know struggling everywhere through lack of money lack of staff um over the years can be enhanced by partnering up with people who've come from all sorts of backgrounds but basically looking for positive outcomes for the people who use their services um, so it can be business people, it can be lawyers, it can be all sorts of people, you know, doctors, whatever. Uh, these are examples of how these things have worked. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was a fascinating discussion. It is, it is not your typical Hobeck Hobcast interview. But I think any writer can learn from this. And any person who uses public services as well, they're going to learn something from this interview. Well, you're a broad church here at the Hobcast. <laughs> so it's an enormous pleasure to speak to Jamie Veach and Jonathan Bland. Uh, Rebecca, it's not often that we we do this, but we actually have two people and two different lines coming into the building. It's not often, no, but we've done it before. A rare pleasure. (laughs) And we welcome Jonathan Bland and Jamie Beach to the Hofcast Book Show. Hi, thank you. And we're talking about Vitalising Purpose, uh, which is your new book, which is an exciting week because it's it's out this week. So congratulations, gentlemen. But a lot of people also contributed towards this. Um, so it's quite a big project. How long has it taken to get to this point? Well, I think we started uh, about uh, over a year ago, nearly a year and a half. Um, we were looking to do something meaningful to mark uh, 10 years of the E3M initiative, which is all about promoting social enterprise innovation and in public services. And we thought, what a better way than actually showcasing some of the fantastic social enterprises um, that we work with and trying to get across to a wider audience how these kind of businesses really can make a difference to people's lives. Yeah, that's uh, so a decade. And I, what a decade it's been. Rough, I would imagine, for a lot of the, the uh, areas of public life and public services that we're talking about. In, certainly in the UK. Um, so a lot to encapsulate. That's right. I mean, public services have been really, really hit hard with austerity and Brexit and staff shortages and pressures on them like never before. I mean, if you think about public services and what they do and how they help people, people are more stretched, under more pressure, asking for more help from public services, public se- services expected to do more often with less, with 
people stretch to it's really hard as you say what 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 a what a difficult decade Jonathan let's take you back to Genesis then what brought the organization together what why did you create E3M uh, 10 years ago? Well, previously I'd been the um, founding chief executive of Social Enterprise UK, the kind of national body for social enterprises. And I'd been in lots of kind of policy and lobbying and meetings with government ministers of different colours and politicians over the time. And, you know, they'd always been on to the next kind of ministerial wheeze and would never really get on to the, the key issues of how you could really support the growth of social enterprise in public services, which was around looking at how the markets work and how services are actually commissioned and the the way that the decisions are made, if you like, by the, the custodians of local democracy, you know, things can either go out to big outsourcing companies or just kind of stay in house and the, that kind of middle ground where there are some really innovative and different different models wasn't being looked at. And then if you do want to grow that, how do you get the, the money, the investment if you're not there to build shareholder value but you're there for a social purpose and then how do you kind of organize that and so uh, really we started e3m with a view to bringing together a group of leaders of mature social enterprises that could learn and share with each other and share some of their knowledge and experience more widely so that's how we started out and since then we've been doing more and more engagement across the the groups of not just social enterprises but people working in local public authorities and also some of the the funders that can make a difference into helping social enterprises to grow that's to get to that point of maturity is is an achievement in itself to actually have bodies that have hung around long enough because of the short-termism that i (laughs) certainly suspect and you you rub up against all the time and at the moment we have you know central government that will run up something that dominates the headlines but actually not develop or push through on it is that the experience that you know you've you've had over that tech 10 years certainly that that's that's absolutely true and i think one of the things that we see um one of the big things right from day one when we started were issues around public procurement and the kind of perceived barriers to being able to work with social enterprises and to be able to take a more um, relational approach and to work kind of more long term. There's a perception that everything has to be done in a very kind of narrow marketized kind of process way where actually the rules allow a lot of flexibility um but partly because of the the sort of culture of the way that people work and also i think with both nationally and in local government the kind of election cycles create a sort of short-term approach um where you might have um people recontracting every three years and actually if we're looking at some of the really big problems that we've got be it around homelessness or young people going into care or um, helping people who've been through the criminal justice system or any of those things they're not quick fixes you need a kind of 10 year plus time frame Um, and so the 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 combination of the political uh, cycle and the perceived way that um, procurement rules are uh, interpreted it kind of makes it hard so Jamie and um, when you're when you're putting a book together like this in the sense of trying to offer some wisdom and you know some experience from the number of people who've contributed towards this because there are a number of chapters there's in, a lot uh, of wisdom in that book absolutely mm. uh it is 
it is difficult, perhaps a difficult sell in the sense that everyone is hoping that when they open this up, if they're in that sort of sphere, they'll offer those quick fixes. But that's not really what we're talking about here. You're absolutely right. In terms of quick fixes, they are difficult, but we do have examples of social enterprises succeeding despite the odds, despite the odds against them that Jonathan has described when it comes to sort of short termism and and so on. And it's funny as well, as you mentioned, loads of people contributed to this book and the key people who've contributed are all of us who use public services and then feedback on how that experience what that experience is like to the people who deliver those services and and their voices are the most important voices but one thing really struck me it was you know whether we were talking with someone who we interviewed for the book who runs um, a greengrocer stall in a market or whether we're picking the brains of a crack team of investigative journalists from the FT they were saying the same thing in terms of the pressures on public services. And again, a Labour voter in Barnsley, Sarah, who works in a warehouse and finds it so difficult to get childcare at the right time and the right price, was saying the same thing pretty much as a former Conservative leader of a, a council down in the South in terms of the, the resource problems and so on. And, and so... We do talk about the problems, but there are solutions. They do exist. We showcase them in the book and we'd love to see more of them and accelerate it. And it might not be easy, but it's certainly possible. We Mm. know the art of the possible. And now I think we know the power of the possible as well, too, in terms of putting people's minds at rest that social enterprises are great partners with public authorities. Well, I think I think that one of the the key selling points of this book, a bit like what you were talking about, is it, it it contains experiences where it's worked really, really well. And that's so. When I was editing it <laughs> and reading it, it was that sort of you you feel the passion and you feel that it's not just theory; it actually has worked. And here's the evidence. And so, um, you know that that was sort of what I think. So set it apart from other business books that might say this is what you should be doing this is your book is saying this is what has happened so it works it's really I'm really glad that that came through to you and you know your edit of course really gave it zing and and brought and helped bring it to life too but we really wanted to show this isn't theory this is practice this is practice and we'd like to see more of this because it is possible so, Jonathan, the question really that springs to mind for me is, who is this actually aimed at? I mean, is this something that you want in the hands of cabinet ministers and the people beneath them and indeed the civil service uh, at that national level? Or is it something that you want people to pick up from a wider public to push from underneath for change? I think we probably want both and a bit in the middle. Um, mm. And when we talk about it being focused very much at the custodians of local democracy. And so we would like every single chief executive of every local authority in the country to, to read it and appreciate it and share it with their, their teams and also the, the, the councillors and um, elected uh, officials who are making decisions about how services are organised. Um, we also, you know, want to support the kind of social entrepreneurs and people who are growing uh, social enterprises. 
but we would very much um, like ministers and, and certainly uh, Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet as well to take a very good look at it and have a think about what might be different going forward. Because what's clear is we have been on a real downhill path for many different kinds of services over the last 10 years. Um, and we need to do something about it. Everybody knows somebody who's had a problem with a service, if it's a partner or a friend who's been uh, trying to use the NHS or somebody um, with a, 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 a problem um, to do with social care, if they've got um, somebody in their family with a a learning disability or somebody suffering from mental health. What we've got out, out at the moment just isn't fit for purpose. And we really do need some radical new ways of doing things going forward, as well as some more resource being invested into, into the public framework. I'm interested to know, though, uh, the, the public discourse in terms of the traditional media, because, you know, you're publishing a book, so we're talking about a traditional form of media, albeit nowadays, it, as we were discussing with Jamie on, on his show, it's more democratized. You can get a book of this print quality and editing and all that sort of thing out much easier than it used to be. Um, but we're talking about reaching out to a public that are being fed stuff that is, well, dog whistling a lot of the time mm. from the mail, the telegraph. Pretty much all the papers are taking very, very, even, you know, if you're looking at The Guardian, they're trying to be a bit broader, but at the same time, they're still fighting what seems to be a polemic against all the other media. So how do you get something that's more nuanced like this to be at the forefront of people's th thoughts, Jamie? That's a brilliant question and a great <laughs> observation. But one thing that struck me is the Times newspaper hasn't necessarily always been the newspaper you, that you would think of as an ally with local authorities, with the local council. And yet the Times has done an expose last year on children's services and how so many councils that are running services to look after children, often vulnerable children, are then being, in their words, exploited by private providers, often offshore private providers in many cases, and they think that's, they think that's wrong. And if they think that's wrong, and then other newspapers, for example, The Mail, the Mail has been making a big fuss about the fact that water companies, utilities companies are dumping sewage into, into the sea. I think there's a turning point, actually. I think lots of journalists are picking up on the fact that um, there are better ways and that we don't actually have to put up with this. And yes, it can be nuanced and it can be super nuanced to get this kind of message out there through the media. But there are enough journalists even in the media outlets that you wouldn't necessarily consider to be allies who really do care about this. And again, um, I know the FT has done a huge amount on what you might consider e equality and social um, inequality and dealing with the difficulties that people who live in places that they say have been left behind have to face every day in and out. So I think there are loads more journalists getting it. And I think the public certainly are kind of fed up of well if the people are fed up of sewage being pumped into the sea and um, then they start getting very very fed up of other issues too and, and and we you know we we've interviewed people for the book who who really really get it from all sorts of directions yeah that's a very good point uh, in terms of the actual work that went into this so we're talking about 
you're talk, talking about a year, 18 months. Uh, Jamie, you have a background in publishing, in magazine publishing particularly. So when you embarked the two of you on this and, and uh, <laughs> your elements, obviously the stuff that you wrote, but also the people that you drew into this, did it surprise you the, the complexity of the project? Did you think it would be easier? Or what was, was it ex- easier, maybe? What, what, yeah. what, was it, what was your experience the, for, for you both? I, well, I, I suppose from from uh, for my part, um, I guess it took a bit longer than I thought it might. Um, and that's because we really wanted to do it properly. So we, we were able to get some support from some of the E3M social enterprises to have a bit of resource to, to, to work to work with. And also through our kind of E3M networks, we were able to identify some people and reached out and, and um, people offered to, to contribute. And we, we, we had a, a steering group that um, helped us work, shape, if you like, the, the, the way that we... Um, develop the kind of themes in the 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 book um but it certainly did did take longer but i think it was a lot better for it we had a, a process where we had some preview readers we had about 30 people actually give time to to read a draft of it and they fed back an awful lot of comments and i think jamie was very busy trying to work <laughs> out how we respond to those one or two of them were being contradictory so we had to kind of stale a path through the, the the kind of middle ground but all of them were really helpful and it really strengthened it but it meant that it was a a, a longer process and i i didn't help because i kept uh, suggesting to Jamie that we add in some extra bits so it got a bit longer than, than it might have been but I don't know what you think Jamie <laughs> I think it took it took what it took to do it right and I'm really really happy with the mm. final product and I really appreciated the fact that first of all uh, thanks to thanks to Jonathan working with Jonathan has been great and working with Jonathan's network has been great too and I very much appreciated obviously being commissioned to to do this book properly and I think the surprise was it took quite a long time to choose the name of the book (laughs) yes you're gonna have to tell us about that because um you did mention that at the launch last week and yeah yeah to write and 18 months for us to discuss them yeah not, not quite <laughs> we had quite no but we did we had a kind of within our sort of core group we actually had uh, had a, a sort of circular process and in the end kind of had a, a voting system where we you know, agreed on the, the the final title which in the end everybody was really happy with the design yeah. for the cover everybody kind of agreed on that almost instantly because it was just so good so um yeah it's it, a great it, cover Oh, we love it. We love the cover. It's superb. And we love the name. And you type in the name and just the first two words, the name into a, into um, a, a bookstore and, and it comes up immediately. So we're very happy with that. But I mean, it was, it's so refreshing to do something that's different from lurching from weekly deadline to weekly deadline to weekly deadline, like you do if you're publishing a weekly magazine. It's so refreshing to be able to do something that goes into some depth and then you review it and iterate it. So it took what it took, and I'm I'm really happy how long it took. I suppose I I thought it would take about a year, and it took us a bit longer. In terms of your input, Rebecca, well, my input was yeah. only a little bit, really. Yeah, but I mean, what, what, <laughs> at the very end, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued to know because what what did you do? I mean, because you we obviously were sort of having conversations across the kitchen yeah. table about 
and you were very excited by yeah. it. But how much, oh, it's how, quite funny, how, isn't how it? much input do you have in, when, when you receive something with, with that much thought and, and, and I, well, curation behind it? Well, as an editor, I, I had no idea how long it taken you to get to that point. I don't know much about the background, only sort of the basics. Um, but for me, the one of the things I liked about the book was that it was real experiences of real people and they all had their different voices. And so I suppose part of what I did was just to sort of polish that yes. slightly, you know, sort of make it just that little shinier, I guess. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, I, I'm just, it's like an iceberg, isn't it? The sort of the final, the typesetting, the editing, the yeah. any proofreading or anything like that. The, the the final bits are putting it together is just the top of the iceberg. It's the bit that everybody sees, but all that work underneath, that's what you've done beforehand, that years long um, process. Indeed. I mean, as the essays came in from contributors, we, we did quite a bit of working with the contributors to then ask for more information if they were saying something had happened, but then it didn't have the evidence to back it up we're saying that's exciting tell us a little bit more about that and perhaps doing a little bit of work to polish their essays as well and and, and help them with those and then when it came to working with you I thought you went well beyond the brief and really supported us with with the development of it right at that last stage getting it over the line in terms of um your suggestions your proofreading but actually copy editing suggestions and all sorts too and and I tell you what I was super excited when we found you uh, to to work on the book I thought we've got the absolute ideal person here so there we go no I, I mean I thoroughly enjoyed it and as Adrian said I would tell him all about it I'd say oh this book I'm doing it's it's really good I'm really glad I got this job <laughs> Because the thing about, so it was through Reedsey. And yes. as you know, Reedsey is a company, you're looking for an editor. And then um, I don't know what it's like from the end that you look at, but I will get an email that says someone has um, selected you to quote for this job. That's and right. so you get the email and you, you might get the sample text and then you send it off and then you just keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> That's it, um, isn't it? Yeah. But it's pot, it's completely potluck. You know, I've had some very bizarre requests i was thinking you must get get some really weird and wonderful ones through it yeah yeah so i know I'm, 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 but so far every every project i've worked on through reedsy has gone really well i've been really pleased so really no, good i mean one of the things that strikes me about it because you know and i i haven't read it all yet i i hasten to add gentlemen but it's the breadth of the effort across the uk to improve things mm. in society from all sorts of different angles uh it's just staggering and in a sense every single page is one of those one in the eye for mrs thatcher who said there's no such thing as society <laughs> this proves there very much is and actually in a, in a way um you might be reflect on it and say jonathan isn't it a shame that we have to have people stepping in to fill the breach locally to fulfill these services and, and direct them in the right way or alternatively, you might say it's actually a really positive thing because of that is democracy in action. I don't know whether that's a, a fair point to make. Well, I think I mean I think there are always going to be challenges. We have got, we've got a lot more challenges that we shouldn't necessarily have, given how 
wealthy this country is. Um, there ought to be ways of organising things so that we don't have uh, so many people in poverty or so many uh, people with the different kinds of problems that they have to go through. But the thing that I love about my work and that, that I've been doing for the last, I don't know, 35 years or, or, or longer is working with people who are leading um, social enterprises. And they might be a trading charity, they might be a cooperative, they might be a, a community interest company. But the people who work have a passion and a passion for social change and for improving and making things better. And they're getting on with it. They're not just kind of sitting there hoping somebody else will do something or that somehow it will suddenly get better they're actually making the change that we need to have and that that inspires me to do to do what i do and to to want to support them and to have so much more of it it's, you know if we could really harness the full potential of social enterprise and then you know we could make such a difference and and i think one of the things that i have noticed over that period is that from nobody really knowing about what it might be to it is something that people are becoming aware of and more and more young people are becoming aware of and more and more young people even if it's just about private business they don't want to work in a private business that doesn't have a corporate social responsibility or a, a, a pursuit of linking through to the the um the sustainable development goals or things like that and so we have we do have an opportunity uh, to harness that interest and to do so much more i think and and so that's what from our part part the, the book is all about mm. Mm. and it, it just struck me that if, if if people are sort of confused as to what that might be uh the the most obvious public example of someone working you know in a sort of social enterprise business mm. and you might say oh no it's not not an example of it, it was the bank of dave Oh, the Bank of Dave. <laughs> in a way. So we're talking about Dave Fishwick, uh, yeah. based up in... Uh, where is it? Oh, Bo- where was it? Barnsley or something like that? Was uh, it? That's right. Bo- and, uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, it, he's uh, an entrepreneur, millionaire, sells minibuses for a living and sets up his own loans facility for local business with local people investing in that business, tries to set up a bank. Uh, and, of course, it's been turned into a Netflix film and mm. uh and, and a cinema release and, and and done exceptionally well they're doing another another one I Aren't think. They? Yeah, wow. yeah. but the documentary is more interesting and, yeah the rich uh, dave is fascinating and, and i suppose that's a sort of and i was trying to think of where, where do i know about sort of these sort of businesses that are set up from with from that point of view and there it is there's an example but jamie is that is that a fair <laughs> sort of comparison or is I that it's just... a really good comparison and and it rings true for me because there are in the uk a bunch of social investors so purpose-driven investors that lend money to social enterprises and to businesses to SMEs and to people as well Um, but not driven by profit driven by purpose so the ones that lend to people they help people avoid loan sharks they help people avoid high interest lenders the ones that lend to small businesses are a little little bit like dave and the Mm. ones that lend to social enterprises i mean many people will know of the big issue for example as uh, a uh, the the magazine uh, with really good editorial values you know they want people to buy the big issue because it's got great features and content in it not as a pity purchase but lots lots of people don't necessarily know that the big issue has uh, there's something called big issue invest as well which um and, and i think people now when they saw dave and the bank of dave they're, they're like well that makes sense 
But actually, there are institutions like that up and down the country that are not for profit, but actually for purpose lenders, just like Dave. And Dave's helped bring that to life, actually. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And actually, now it reminds me that if you, I mean, business in terms of the UK media, it's, there are certain aspects to it. So, you know, you've got the the the, the morning kind of roundup of, of share prices and there's a bloke, is it, uh, I can't remember his name now, David Buick, who will turn up on every platform talking about, oh yeah, well, we're going to sell shares. And blah, blah, blah. And that sounds like Boris. Yeah, it was a bit Boris. It was a bit Boris. I do apologise for giving anybody the shakes for that. <laughs> you but you then, do voices you, for a living though, don't you? <laughs> right. He does a good Boris. <laughs> does, but, but then you look at Dragon's Den and the way they now consider an investment on Dragon's Den has completely changed yeah, in the 15, yeah. 15 years that it's been on air. Rather, you know, they talk about the numbers, but now they talk about the purpose almost as much mm. as how much they're going to make out of it. Mm. And they'll invest, all five of them will jump on something that makes them look good. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, Jonathan, that suggests that some of the, the messaging and the work that your organization and the people that you work with, that's getting through to people you know at a at a sort of stratospheric level of entrepreneurship i mean i think there is uh you know a kind of i don't know if it's a zeitgeist uh shift but there is a kind of bit of movement i suppose what would be really nice and i guess you're the experts in in this i know you work for the the bbc is, is how we can how we can get the kind of um bank of dave and some other contexts as it were in in terms of, I mean, it'd be just great to feature some of the social enterprises that are in the book or some of the other ones that 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 we work with and for more people to 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 know about it through other other mediums so it's not just a a, a book it would be great to have a a tv series or some documentaries or some uh things um going on and it would be great occasionally you know to hear about a social enterprise business doing something interesting on the today program rather than just having the share prices coming forward or a view to what's happening in the 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 bond markets um that's our next step i think jamie <laughs> well, that's a challenge now listen um vitalizing purpose the movie yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant yeah who would star in that okay well this is um this is the point where things take a turn for the worst gentlemen because i think you know it's been a really fantastic discussion and thank you for that but it is time for rebecca to make yeah what is regarded in british podcasting as the 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 ultimate challenge and that of course is rebecca's random question so i normally think of the question on the day of the podcast and that's certainly the case with this one this morning i was driving back from the school run and desert island discs came on and it was Adam Kay, who's the author of, um, oh, it's that, he's a doctor. What's that book called? Can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can remember it was Ben Wishaw was in the, yeah, in the, the TV the, version. So very funny book, very funny TV series as well. And he was doing Desert Island Discs. This is going to hurt or something? This is going to hurt. Well, that's going to hurt or this won't hurt or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I was thinking, he was talking about his medical career. And I was thinking, oh, gosh, in another life, I would have loved to have been in medicine. And so my question to you is, if in another life you went into medicine, what would be your speciality and why? <laughs> Jonathan first. Oh, he's thinking right. <laughs> right. Well, I suppose um, that's a really interesting uh, question. And I suppose 
if I did go into medicine, um, then I guess doing something um, to help people um, be healthier in the sense of not just kind of um, trying to um, patch up people who've broken something or, you know, fixing things when they've really gone wrong, but doing something that can make a difference going forward. So, for example, there's some really interesting, I think there's a couple of doctors who've been doing this work together who are twins on ultra processed food and actually even experimenting on themselves and contrasting and comparing between the, the, the two of them. So doing something like that, that could really kind of make a, a positive difference going forward and not just kind of looking looking backwards, I suppose. Mm, that's a fantastic answer. One for you, Jamie, too. I think I'd have gone into mental health if I'd gone into medicine. So I'd have, I, I did a psychology degree. Psychology isn't medicine, but um, but I think I was quite really quite interested in that and things like visual um how visually impaired people create mental maps fascinated me. So uh, there's been loads of research, or there was 30 years ago anyway, when I did a psychology degree, I don't know what it's like now, about creating mental maps and really enjoyed that. And so if I'd actually gone into medicine, it would have been something in terms of in, in, in terms of um, mental health um, or something in terms of cognitive processing and so on. Mm. Mm. Mm, fascinating. Well, you see, originally I was thinking, for me, gastro, because I find that the, the digestive system fascinating. But actually what you're saying, I, I think I'd be interested in neuroscience, mental health as well. And it's funny you mentioned it because I, I, we did a Myers-Briggs test, uh, the two of us, and it turns out we're exactly the same type. Which... got the same answer, exactly the same answer independently. Which was really weird. Yeah. There are, so there are 16 types, aren't there? What, what yeah, types 16 types. So we're mediators out of that. Or if you prefer the acronym, it's INFPs. Uh, with a dash T, which is a bit of thinking thrown in them, but mostly we're feeling. Um, and only 1% of the population are people like us. I know. Uh, and we're very creative. And it suggested careers. I had this email from the people I did the test with, and they said, hey, have you thought about your careers? And I was thinking, yeah. And it says, a lot of people write fiction. Well, hello. <laughs> um, but the other thing was, uh, it was saying, you know, if you're going into the health professions, you probably want to work in the mental health area. And uh, oh, there you go. And actually, I think yeah. that's that's where I would lean. But I don't think I'd ever have the attention span to do the exams to get qualified. Oh well, well, it's truth. quite it's quite tough, isn't it? I, I um similar sort of thing that people often tell me their problems. Random people, people in the post office, the women behind yeah. the counter are always telling me their problems, and I think I'm just that sort of person that people want to offload to. You're a one woman social enterprise. Well, it selling books. Sound like it. You are. <laughs> Well, look, uh, it's 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 time to to, to wrap. But um, Jonathan and and Jamie, thank you so much. And uh, it really is a. Um, this is a departure for us to talk about a book. Of There's this. no murders. Well, that's one thing, um, which is a positive for something that is about public service. <laughs> um, but it, it's a very important book, and mm. we wish you every success with Vitalizing Purpose. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been really great to be here. And if anybody wants to get hold of a copy, you can just get it on Amazon, Vitalizing Purpose, or you can even download it for free on the E3M website. That's www.e3m.org.uk. Thank you. That's great. You can get it for free. Fantastic. And we will be leaving a link for that with the show. But uh, 
gentlemen thank you so much for joining brilliant. us brilliant well thank you rebecca and adrian thanks so much for having us on the show i know that jonathan in particular was particularly worried about facing your random question <laughs> he looked terrified yes indeed <laughs> yeah and this is a man who's not, i think negotiated with prime ministers and <laughs> Uh, walk the corridors power I... in Whitehall and, and met all sorts of people and uh, yet yeah, you know had to face Rebecca's random question but I loved his answer and it mm. was very him yes <laughs> for someone a co-author on that book it was a great great answer to the question yeah it's fascinating the sort of work you pick up as well uh, it's so varied and this was absolutely fascinating yeah no I'm I, you know I'm so pleased I said yes <laughs> and the... in a way in a way I came away from the interview thinking do you know what I should be doing more for everyone. You, you were know. actually quite down that evening. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, we run a, a publishing company. We're trying to get it, you know, to where we need it to be to pay our living and pay the authors a living and all that sort of thing and, and battling away. And yet, you know, we could invest that energy on doing something that benefits society in a wider sense. Hen and, you know, we've got things that we do that are raising money for yeah. charity every Christmas and the Henshaw uh, poetry, pro uh, sorry, the short story competitions that we're now taking over is the profits from, from the sale of the books that we, you know, and that indeed from uh, the entries will go to things that support literary causes. So we do something, we do as much as we possibly can in the time we have. Yeah. But yeah. I, know, I know what you mean. It, it, it did. It's very thought provoking. The whole in a, in a sense, it was like a corridor back to my younger self. Yeah. I mean, because when I was an idealistic teenager growing up in Cambridge, I did get involved in quite a few things that were to the benefit of um, people less fortunate than myself, and that's where I thought I was going to go in life, if, if I'm honest. And mm. it didn't quite work out that way. And there was a sort of um, something pulling at me, actually. Yeah. During after that interview, and, and I did feel a bit down afterwards, and it's nothing to do with the guys. I thought they were fantastic. No, 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 but... no. it was. It's a good. It's a good reaction, and I think it's because you're an FP M1 to Myers Briggs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's put this in context. I encouraged Rebecca because I I've done did this years ago at work. The Myers Briggs test, which tests and assesses your what. what personality type you are of which there are 16 possible personality types and it turned out that the, the two of us were the same personality type which sounds a little dodgy given that only one percent of the population have our personality type and it explains a lot it explains a lot how we work together well and also explains the areas that we clash we clash because we react in the same way to many things that's right that's right and actually you know the emotional side of ourselves is a very, very strong part of what we do. And perhaps that isn't, you know, a good combination for business. But uh, we are mediators, apparently. We are INFPs. That's what I was trying to say, yeah. INFP. Um, anyway, you know, it's funny because when I did it 10 years ago at the BBC, I came out as an ENFP. Extrovert. Extrovert. Mm. But actually, I think that was masking. I think the, the nature of my role meant that I was having to be extrovert but actually my nature is more introvert totally absolutely uh, that's that's how i see you yeah and i didn't really realize that because i've always been a sort of when people meet me a big character yeah and you still are in many ways yeah but it's a performance <laughs> you know it's like it's like being an actor or uh how many stand-up comedians when you meet them uh outside of their performance are very introverted and quiet. Like, I mean, I've met Rowan Atkinson a couple of times, the quietest person you'll ever meet, hardly yeah. get a word out it's, of it. It's not uncommon at all. 
Uh, and yet, people expect them to be absolutely, and, and they're, they're quite surprised when they're not. No, I mean it, it's it's true of a lot of um, performers that I've met over the years, and and that you would expect to be big characters, and they're just not. They're mm. really really quiet until called upon to perform in front of an audience, and um, then they retreat. And so, yeah, this this is a fascinating thing to do. I'd, I'd recommend if you go. There's plenty of places yeah, you can do these tests. Yeah, it's just an online test, isn't it? Yeah, I think we should do it for authors in future because <laughs> then we can know what we're... You know, honestly, it's a very good guide as to what input you need to put in for each individual. But it also makes you think about yourself. I oh, mean, totally, that, you yeah. Know, it made me think about... And, and since then, any work I've been doing, I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's that explained mm. by my result. And Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of things that it's thrown up in terms of... Uh, going back to my old job at the BBC... Uh, we moved to a very, very open plan set up in Salford and it was, I found it an impossible environment to work in. As it turns out, for, for somebody with attention deficit disorder and the sort of character that I am, it was overwhelming and made it very, very difficult for me to concentrate because I was facing my entire team and picking up every single oh. element of vibe that was coming off it's each of them. It makes me feel anxious thinking about it. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was, you know, because I had a particular social radar that picks up all the, all the signals. Yeah. And it's just my brain was overwhelmed. It's like, it's like being surrounded. It's like being in a concert because you mm. hear all the noise. Yeah, exactly. And actually, one of the things that was suggested I should be wearing noise-cancelling headphones and being put in a private office, but they weren't none available mm. they didn't provide any um and no partitioning of any description so you were just in p constant public view not everyone can work like that no i, I certainly couldn't and uh, it became impossible anyway look i digress <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's the nature of our podcast let's be honest so uh this week coming we are on our travels for a day yes i've got quite a busy week we have actually. yeah yeah we're heading down to uh wiltshire we're heading down to Melksham, and we'll be visiting CPI, who we are, are the other big uh, printers yes. of, of paperbacks in the UK. Clay's being one, which we've, we've worked with for a couple of years now, and CPI the other. And they have a new way of getting books to market, which is something that we're investigating yeah, so this week. It's going to be quite interesting, but I, I this is something that came from my OUP days, I think... Anyone who works in publishing should visit a printer's anyway because you, you just have to see how your product is made. It's fascinating. Yeah. So looking forward to that. We've got a day with them and uh, finding out more about how they're going to liaise with Gardeners, the distributor, to make it a much more seamless uh, operation in terms of getting books into the right hands, especially across the UK market, but internationally as well. So I think that this could be a, a significant um step change for us but it, we'll have to see is it anywhere near stonehenge yeah i mean it's the same county well it's almost well we've just passed the longest day we could go dancing at stonehenge i can see you do that i'm not much <laughs> of a dancer as you know but um <laughs> we uh we could do that i mean i i was uh, there, there are I, I used to work down there very briefly i did a couple of weeks working at great western radio gwr in swindon not far from there and one of the jobs i had to do was i had to go to melksham to report on the World Gut Barging Championships. The what, 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 what? World Gut Barging Championships. Oh, is that the, you, you dump each other with your guts? Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a British version of sumo where similar things, we had to strip down to our underwear. Oh, and then did you compete? I, I competed, yeah, because it was part of my report. 
for our local news program. So I, I had to take on Mad Maurice, the Belgian from Melksham, who is the world champion three times uh, over at the how time. How did you do? Not terribly well. He's a big lad. And... Um, yeah, it was painful, actually, when you're slamming into each other's wow. bellies. And, I, you know, anyone who knows me knows that I've got a bit of a, a beer gut. But this was when I was in my 20s. I'm only just leaving university when I did oh, this so job. Oh, you were a, a slip of a thing then. But um, one of the things you had to do was to purify the ring. Was wee-wee? What? No, 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 no. In sumo, you've seen this because you've been to Japan, but they throw salt into the ring. <laughs> Right? Hello, can into you the dojo. Do you been to Japan? So of course you know about it. Well, that's what they do. You know, they throw great handfuls of salt yeah, they do, yeah. to ward away evil spirits and to purify the ring. Um, I know it, most people start sniggering behind their hands when I say purify your ring. Um, but uh, the, instead of using salt, you use Bombay mix. Oh, don't be daft. No, that's what you did. Great handfuls of Bombay mix, throw it in. It was that, in a pub. That's one of your stories. No, no, it's true. <laughs> you wonder what, look at, go on YouTube. There are there are videos of gut, world gut barging there. No, I don't, I believe the world gut barging part of the story. It's a Bombay mix to purify the ring. Yes, you throw Bombay mix. <laughs> it was fantastic. And it featured on TV, it was on Rapido TV and all that sort of thing. You know, the sort of Channel 4 stuff of the 90s. I know, I know yeah. So... You know, you may mock, but it was a big thing. And, yeah, it went up against the world champion, Matt Maurice, the Belgian from Melksham. So, Is there footage of this anywhere? No, no, it was done for radio. I did this for radio. Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, uh, okay. Can't offer you footage. <laughs> I'd love to see it. Yeah. Um, we were both oiled up as well. Oh, gosh, it's getting a bit kinky. It was a bit kinky. It was a bit weird. You know, my chest hair oh, mixing the- with his. <laughs> it was a bit, bit too much, really. He was a really big beard as well, Matt Maurice. Um, anyway, we're going back to Melksham for that. And, um, well, we're, say, not, we're not taking well, part. You say we've got a busy week. We've obviously got to record another interview with our next guest, who is? Louise Manford. Okay, and she is published by HQ, writing a psychological fiction. Yes, so we're looking forward to that. Yeah, that'll be terrific. What I've, else have we got? Well, I've also got dinner with an old friend. <laughs> That's, no, it's not news to me. It's it not, shouldn't be news no, to me. It, it's, yeah, I did tell you, but you were, it, it was it's fine. So... Um, uh, Caroline, she's called Caroline. She works in education. She came to Telford last year, and I had dinner with her. She's back again, mm. so I'm going to meet her for dinner on Wednesday. Absolutely, girly chats. And it's the last few days of National Crime Reading Month as it well. It is. So we've got three books, which it'll finish on Thursday. Um, so that's The Confession by Maureen Mind, um, The Devil's Bridge Affair by Rob Gittins. I tweet about these books three times a day, and yep. I can't bring them to my mind. And the third one is Pact of Silence by Linda Huber. Fantastic. So check those out, 99p on Amazon, don't tell the independent bookshop community, uh, this week. <laughs> and uh, then we'll tumble into July. Gosh, it's an, you know Harrogate month. Oh, gosh, July is going to be really busy. Oh, don't say that, please. We, need to, <laughs> we, need, we just need a breather. But... Uh, We'll carry on making this wonderful podcast that we're so proud of, The Hopcast Book Show. Don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net, for more details of our authors and books, and indeed, archpub.net, if you're interested in hiring us for our publishing services. So from me, Agent Hobart. And me, Rebecca Collins. We'd like to thank you so much for joining us, and we wish you a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website 
www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Thank you.